Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is September the 8th, 2021, and we are back with some more great IT news for each and every one of you. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am a part of the wonderful Gestalt IT family, and I want to welcome you on this very special National Ampersand Day. And joining me for this three-way dance are my two other co-hosts, Mr. Zach DeMeyer. Zach, welcome to the show. And what is your favorite punctuation mark? Ooh, that is a good question. I think mine is the interrobang, the mixture of the exclamation point and the question mark, perfectly capturing that huh? that we all feel in life sometimes. Very exciting and somewhat curious, as it were. And also joining us is Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, you're a writer. What punctuation mark really gets you going? Um, two spaces after a period really gets me going, but not in a good way. I can confirm that. Um, the other thing that gets us going around here at the rundown is a great lineup of news stories, and we do have those this week. So let's jump right into some of the stories that we caught, that we caught on our weekly troll, which was uh, one of them coming out of our friend Pat Gelsinger, uh, because in his first in-person keynote since taking the helm, he announced that by 2030, he believes that chips will account for over 20% of the components needed to create cars. Now that is going to top the 2019 numbers, which sat just around 4%. Um, this prediction mirrors Pat Gelsinger's digitization of everything uh, mantra, but also raises questions about the supportability, because I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an ongoing chip shortage, and it has significantly impacted the ability of automotive manufacturers to produce and deliver vehicles. Steven, do you think that Intel can step up to the plate to deliver this uptick in demand and help the car market succeed even if the overall number of chips in a car rises? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, certainly, uh, I think it's safe to say that microchips have become just as important to cars as tires and brakes and seats and so on that are produced by outside suppliers typically. Uh, and now uh, the car makers are really running into the hard truth that in the world of microchips, uh, BMW or Ford or General Motors is not necessarily the heavy hitter they are in the world of dashboards and seats. And for that reason, uh, many of them have their production lines idled and are waiting on microchips. So what's going to happen? Well, uh, the chip makers are responding. Uh, that we're not talking about CPUs and GPUs here, though to some extent we are. Um, really what we're talking about are all those little chips all over the place, power controllers and little you know, communications chips and UARTs and things like that that are just all over vehicles these days. Those things don't require advanced semiconductor manufacturing technology. In fact, they can use old, boring, out of the you know, out of the mainstream uh, process nodes in order to be produced, but those process nodes are full too. In fact, we've heard that uh, TSMC and Samsung are actually increasing prices on like 28 nanometer chips and above, which is to say a pretty old product. So what we're gonna see is, uh, as Gelsinger said, increased uh, uh, investment, not just in the cutting edge process nodes that we all like to talk about, those seven nanometer and below, but in old fashioned stuff. In fact, we've just heard last week that there's gonna be a new gigafab built in China to produce basically old janky <laughs> chips in massive, massive volumes. 
And um, Gelsinger has promised about $100 billion of investment in uh, producing chips in Europe, in addition to the giant fab that uh, he already committed to building in the United States. And to me, I think that's the interesting point, is that we're not just seeing more fabs being built. We're seeing more fabs being built in more places with more different process nodes. And I think that all of this is a response to the fact that these chips are lacking. Unfortunately, as the CEO of BMW told us last week as well, uh, this problem isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, it's very likely that we're going to have still massive chip shortages causing idle uh, car factories well into 2022, because it just takes a while for this stuff to get online. Zach, I've got a story for you here. Uh, Cisco is reporting that their WebEx calling feature now has surpassed 8 billion monthly calls. This service is essentially a uh, cloud phone system, and it has about 4 million subscribers, which is double what Zoom has for their similar uh, cloud phone system. Cisco is touting the ease of integration with their other WebEx services and the advanced feature set shared with their platforms. Cisco didn't disclose how many of those customers were previous Cisco UCS or Unified Communications users, or if the numbers include customers that primarily use the full service WebEx license and might just use this feature sometimes, occasionally, you know. Um, is uh, enterprise phone making a comeback in this world of video calling? You know, Stephen, I uh, I feel that it probably isn't a comeback because it's it's been here for years. You know, we've uh, we've been making phone calls ever since uh, Alexander Graham Bell rolled out his uh, his fancy machinery way back in the 1800s. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's still a very viable method of communication, uh, despite what uh, you know today's uh, youngest generation might tell you. But it's uh, you know, Stephen, I think that. It's it's really kind of a an important distinction to make here that it is just the you know just the calling feature and and for some you know some organizations and really just some people that's just their preferred method of communication they're on the go or they're uh, you know maybe not not looking their best in the morning and they don't really want to be uh, you know shown on a video screen and and perhaps don't have to record something like this where uh, they're uh, running down the news of the week. And, and at the end of the day, the sort of thing that they need to do is just get in, talk about the things that they need to talk about and get out. And so uh, it's, uh, it's really kind of no surprise to me that, that this is, uh, you know, that, that these numbers are, are getting up to such a, a height. And at the end of the day, too, it's no surprise that Cisco's leading the charge because when it comes to phone communications, networking is just as important as uh, as you know it is in, in just as uh, any other any other realm and so making sure that everyone can easily dial in and and have a crisp clear call line is very important and that's what cisco is all about so uh you know i i think at the when it comes down to it it's really uh not a, not a huge surprise to me that this is uh, these numbers are as high as they are and uh, really just uh, congrats to Cisco. Their, their WebEx platform is certainly something, and it's uh, something we even use here at Gestalt IT. So uh, you might, might need to check it out. Tom, I've got a story for you here, and this one's, uh, this one's an interesting one. Smashing security host and friend of the show, Graham Clooney, is reporting that the Ragnar Locker Malware Group has turned to some new tactics to get their victims to pay up. In a new communique released to their targets, any attempt to contact law enforcement uh, or any cybersecurity firms or, or even, you know, the uh, folks like the FBI or the CIA that specialize in negotiating with digital terrorists 
will have their data leaked immediately. Uh, the group has hit companies like Capcom and Campari in the past, but do you think that this shift in tactics is a, uh, a signal that business isn't going quite as well as they, uh, they might have thought, Tom? You know, the first thing that I do whenever I'm trying to extort money from customers is I tell them, don't talk to anybody else, because if you do, I'm going to do bad things. And that's typically where you lose them because, well, if I don't tell anybody about it, then what's the worst that could happen? You can do it again and again and again. Um, in the article that we link in the show notes, Graham points out that, yeah, this is basically the fact that they think that there's advanced enough technology out there now to help decrypt these things. And what they're relying on is the target's panic mode of, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I screwed something up. I really need to get this fixed before I get fired. When you look at the number of companies out there in the backup recovery disaster avoidance space that are essentially saying, never pay, don't pay, do whatever it takes to not give these people any more money and use our product to help you recover. That is telling me that it has had a significant impact on the bottom line, because we've seen this before in the market where it's, oh, we're going to encrypt some of your files and you're going to have to pay to get them back. And then it's, we're going to encrypt everything and you're going to have to pay to get it back. And then it's, if you don't pay us, we're going to release the files. And now it's, we're going to release the files if you call anybody and tell them. So that tells me that it's getting harder and harder to get money out of them because we know that they historically have requested these ransoms in Bitcoin and the value of Bitcoin fluctuates a lot, but it is still effectively on the rise which means they're getting more money per hit, if you will. I think the number of hits is going down overall because companies can get mostly back to normal with all of the prevention measures that they've put in place. And by getting law enforcement involved in the whole thing, the safe spaces for these places, these um, crews to hide are slowly starting to shrink. Think about all of the ones that we've seen recently, You know, the Colonial Pipeline hack, and a lot of the other ones where the crews have basically gone to ground as soon as possible because they know that they're going to get caught. And I think that this is an attempt to say, don't sick the law on us or we'll embarrass you. But all it's going to take is one person to call their bluff. And then if your entire crew gets nicked and put in prison somewhere, it, it really won't do you any good. So I luckily have never found myself in a situation where I've had to pay up on a ransomware demand. But I'm saying to the companies out there, realize that this is a cornered animal that's ready to fight. So call their bluff, please, because I think that you're going to find they don't actually have as many teeth as, the, as you might think. All right, Stephen, I want to turn back to a chip story here because I know this is near and dear to your heart. Because if you thought that the chip market was going to come down to a fight between Intel and ARM, well, Big Blue would like to have a word with you. Um, this week, IBM announced some details behind their new Power 10 family because this is the latest version of their custom line of processors. It's a performance family that's built on a 7 nanometer Samsung process. It's aimed at the hybrid cloud market because the idea is to take a bunch of these things, up to 16 of these processors that are running eight threads per core, and uh, stick them all into a giant uh, server that can run like almost 2,000 logical threads and then distribute workloads amongst all of them. Um, IBM's announcement also discussed some certain terms that we come to think of when we think of cloud models like pay-per-use. That is a fundamental tenant of the uh, Red Hat OpenShift cloud model uh, that, of course, IBM is the owner of Red Hat. Um, 
is this going to make IBM relevant in this horse race again, Stephen? Or are we really thinking that IBM may have been put out to pasture in the power line already, and this is not something that's really going to matter in the long run? Well, those of us in tech love to get distracted by ARM versus Intel and so on. And, and occasionally maybe we'll mention, you know, I don't know, RISC-V, but we very rarely mention the power architecture. Um, as a reminder, this is actually the successor to uh, PowerPC from way back when. Um, and essentially it's another RISC architecture that's still going. Um, so the Power 10 is a brand new uh, next generation family of uh, chips in the Power family. And this thing is a monster. As you mentioned, some of the marquee fig uh, features here um, are that each chip uh, can have uh, 16, actually has 16 cores, only 15 are, are made available because of yield issues. But each chip has uh, basically 15 cores available. Each core has eight way hyperthreading no kidding so you know you think hyperthreading you think basically i can run two threads per core no no eight eight per core now admittedly uh no there's no magic here and the thing uh runs eight threads per core but those threads all suffer for it because of course they are still running in the same core pipeline but that being said for certain workloads you actually can run eight threads in parallel on each of 15 cores which, you know, right there, you've got 60 threads running in parallel on a single chip. You can have up to eight chips in a box, and that's pretty insane. This thing also has all the latest checkboxes uh, ticked off, including open memory interface uh, for, uh, you know, high bandwidth memory. We've got PCIe Gen 5. Yeah, forget that Gen 4 stuff. We got Gen 5 right here. We've got everything in this box. And frankly, it's super compelling. If you look at what they're offering here, they're offering a thing that uses less power, processes more stuff, can have you know eight terabytes of memory, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a mainframe either. This thing is running conventional applications. Now, the problem here, of course, is uh, price. Because this is IBM that we're talking about. They don't give these things away. In fact, they're mega expensive. They're so expensive, I don't know how much they cost. But suffice to say that it is satisfyingly and reassuringly expensive. But it's also technically super awesome. And as nerds, I think that we really ought to pay more attention to the IBM power architecture, even as we're geeking out about ARM versus x86 and things like that. So Tom and Zach, let's take a turn here and go into a little more detail in a few stories. Uh, there are some big stories this week. Zach, go ahead. If you've ever heard of ProtonMail, they're a company that uh, has prided themselves on privacy. The Swiss-based firm has famously said that they disregard attempts to gather information about users from a number of companies and world governments who have requested it. This week, however, the security-minded service has come under fire after a French climate activist was under investigation by the French authorities, and they wanted access to his email account, which was hosted on ProtonMail. The ProtonMail admins uh, initially refused the request, but the story uh, gets going when the request was sent to Swiss law enforcement through Europol. ProtonMail complied with the request from the Swiss authorities and provided the information, which was later passed on to the French, and the activist was arrested. When they pushed about this seemingly contra contradictory stance on Twitter, the ProtonMail CEO, Andy Yen, clarified that they are required to comply with Swiss law as they are based in Switzerland. 
Evangelists on both sides of the argument are split about the legal responsibilities of Proton Mail and their apparent breach of trust in the customers. Stephen and Tom, you're both outspoken privacy advocates. What's your take on this? So I've been a Proton Mail user for quite a while, and I'm a Proton Mail believer. Uh, I have maybe a little bit of a contradictory view on this because, quite frankly, I think that the internet has just found the latest bad guy of the day, and we're going to all pile onto Proton Mail. Now, is it good that they turned over the IP address of a Proton Mail Proton Mail user to the Swiss authorities? No. Could they have done anything else? No. Unfortunately, they are based in Switzerland and are subject to Swiss law. And that's been something that has been a draw for people like me when we're looking at using Proton Mail, because quite frankly, the Swiss government will not generally just blindly pass on legal requests from other countries. It has to actually be a Swiss request, and the Swiss law is pretty specific about what they can and can't ask for. So that's the nice thing about being subject to Swiss law. The not so nice thing is that they are subject to Swiss law, and if, the, if they get a legal request, they have to comply, and that's what happened this time. Um, could this be a symbol of maybe a chink in the armor of the invincibility of Swiss law for privacy? Yep, yep, it sure could. Uh, does this make me think that Proton Mail are bad guys or somehow backing off of what they're doing? Or there's actually a whole bunch of conspiracy theories about Proton Mail actually being a tool of the CIA and all this kind of stuff. Nope, nope. It's still a pretty good service and it's still based in Switzerland and that's still pretty good. But remember, I mean, think about it. Um, you know, Swiss banks have occasionally been required to turn over um, information about numbered bank accounts. Um, there are limits to what you can achieve in terms of protection from the government and from the courts and from law enforcement, and there always will be. That being said, Swiss law is pretty stringent and it's a pretty good thing to be subject to as opposed to the law in countries that are a lot more permissive. So I'm really not bothered by this. And I'd like to remind everybody that when you're reading these breathless headlines, it's important to remember, all they turned over was the IP address of the person accessing an account. Proton Mail really, really, really doesn't and has been proven not to have access to the content of emails. But of course, it's email, and email has to be decrypted when it gets, a, go, gets sent anywhere, and so there are other ways of accessing that content. One of the things, too, that Proton Mail has done is they have tried to clarify what they will and won't do, and yeah, they were using some weasel words before before, but now they've gotten rid of those weasel words, and they've been a little more clear on the site, and they've published a thing on their blog that specifies it. Another thing they're doing is recommending that people use Tor, the onion router, uh, to access Proton Mail because then Proton won't be able to see uh, who, what the IP address is, and that means that they won't be able to comply with these. And I think that that's to their credit that they're advising people, especially controversial figures, that they should access the service in that way. And finally, Proton Mail has confirmed again that Proton VPN is different and it's subject to different laws in Switzerland, and they cannot be compelled to turn over or log user data in Proton VPN. So again, as a Proton Mail user, as a Proton VPN user, um, and a, frankly, a Proton Mail believer, I still am a Proton Mail believer, and I still think that they did the right thing here, even if it is a little skeevy what happened in terms of arresting someone for using the service. What do you think, Tom? 
I think that if people were concerned about having their IP addresses turned over, they should have used a mail service that was hosted in Sealand, um, because that may be the only place on the planet that can legally refuse all requests until someone with two rowboats manages to invade this time. Um, I get that people are super upset because they believed the Proton Mail was kind of built on this idea that we're never going to turn anything over to the authorities and your privacy is completely protected. And I'll just ask you this, what if it was a scammer that scammed your grandmother out of, uh, you know, $100,000 and you knew who they were, but you needed the IP address to be able to tie it to them to get your grandma's email back or money back? Would you be so cool about their staunch privacy at that point? I would bet that your um, bastion of freedom would crumble just a little bit when it personally affected you. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in. The fact that it took eight months for them to get this information should tell you how hard ProtonMail fought this. They're doing what they have to do. They're doing what they are legally obligated to do. Just like if you shoplifted something out of your, your friend's store, your friend is legally, legally obligated to prosecute you if they want their stuff back. Just like anybody who infringes on a trademark, you are legally required to sue them, even if you know them and you don't mind the use of the trademark, because if you don't defend it, you lose it. And if they did not comply with this request from the Swiss authorities, huh, you can have a proton mail service, you just can't have it in Switzerland. Let's move it somewhere more um, friendly to refusing requests, like, I don't know, Moscow because they're not going to look at our email, right? This is the measure of responsibility that comes along with the freedom to offer these kinds of services. So just saying, if you're going to run a criminal empire, or you're going to be a an activist who is going to get up on the wrong side of the law on occasion, use a VPN. Don't host your email in one country, host it in several. Don't be a criminal. There's a lot of ways that this whole thing could have been avoided before it got to the point where a law enforcement agency was legally required to compel information from a service. And you're tilting at the wrong windmill if that's what you're taking out of this story. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tom. And I, and I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, there, there are limits to privacy. There are limits to what you can do. And frankly, we've just discovered one of the limits of uh, the privacy offered by a company that's operating under Swiss law. So Zach and Tom, uh, I've got another story for you that I thought you might be interested in. Uh, after five years of mystery, more information is coming to light about the attack made on Juniper Networks and their NetScreen firewall back in 2015. Uh, although it's still unclear who perpetrated this attack and what the exact reason was for it, researchers have found an intentionally created backdoor in the product that attackers may have leveraged to get into the network. The bigger problem here is that the backdoor in question was potentially created in part of, via an algorithm supplied to Juniper via the U.S. National Security Agency. Uh, while the NSA has declined to address these allegations, some theorize that the back door was put in place to spy on Juniper's overseas customers to further American security interests, which frankly is pretty much in keeping with the, the last 50 years of history of the NSA. Tom and Zach, what should we be doing uh, here? What should we be concerned about? Uh, what do you think about government-created backdoors and products? All right, so I'll jump in here to start because I actually wrote a blog post about this over at networkingnerd.net. 
And uh, my perspective on it is why in God's name would you use an encryption algorithm provided to you by the NSA that literally nobody else said was secure? Like the thing is, this is the dual EC um, random number generator for those of you who don't know. Um, it was created by the NSA and it was provided to NIST and it was listed as one of the potential um, ECC number generators. And literally every security researcher who looked at it said, uh, yeah, there's a problem. If you know the seed value, you can guess all of the results, which is kind of a really horrible thing to have in a random number generator, unless you're somebody who wants to be able to get into somebody's equipment and decrypt traffic. Now, here's where it gets ugly. NIST released this, and then a whole bunch of government agencies said, if you want us to buy your equipment, it is required that you have support for dual EC included. So now you've, hums, you've hamstrung everybody because we're going to make you include support for something we know is vulnerable and we can break into it. I can't imagine why a government would want to do something like that. Tongue in cheek, sarcastically, I say. In fact, what happened was is that every company, except for Juniper NetScreen, included support for it and then did not enable it by default because <laughs> we're not stupid. Unfortunately, Juniper NetScreen was the one to lose this game of musical chairs. They did enable it by default. And someone, and that someone we now know was APT5, a non-government affiliated but government supported Chinese hacking group, discovered this fact. So what did they do? They used it to hack into Juniper's source code repository and changed the key value for dual EC. So now they know what it is and they can hack into your equipment. And I've said this for years, and I say it every time there's a bill that comes up in the United States Congress asking companies like Apple and Cisco to purposefully weaken their encryption algorithms by creating a key for law enforcement to decrypt things with a warrant. The safest lock in the world is the one that doesn't have a key. If Apple says they can't read your iMessages because they don't have the decryption key, you can believe it. But if they can say, I can't read your messages, but Big Brother can because they have to legally compel a warrant out of us, like we just talked about in the last story, you can come up with some pretty spurious reasons to legally compel a warrant out of somebody. But if the answer to everything is, I don't have a key for it, I'm not going to make a key for it, and that way nobody can read it, do your old-fashioned police work the old-fashioned way, that's a much better answer. Because what happens is, is that six years from now, We'll find out that that key was actually stolen by somebody else and has been used to decrypt all of the information that's being passed through that algorithm. And it's all now available to people who may not necessarily want to use it for the best of intentions. So I'm happy that this is all coming to light. I'm not happy that it required literally a legal investigation from Senator Ron Wyden's office to even find out as much as we have found out. This is like the world's worst ball of string that we have to keep unwinding over and over and over again. And the answer is really simple. Don't use algorithms that have been purposefully weakened so that lazy spies can be lazy. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly there, Tom. And this, you know, questions of privacy and government intrusion aside, this harkens back to the, uh, you know, the Pegasus story that we talked on a, a few weeks ago just the fact that these tools are being created with these potential openings or, or ways to intrude on your privacy, just because the government is able to use that doesn't mean that others aren't able to use that too. And, you know, other bad actors that are, you know, perhaps not nation state backed can still access these things just as these lazy spies can, which means that 
anyone can do it. It's it's it it is no longer a question of oh the government has my information because you know they already have quite a bit of that. But then when you know uh, Johnny Three Fingers over there who's uh, mashing away at his keyboard finds out that he can get into you know your your firewall means that your network is no longer safe and you know he might not be able to uh, give you know. It, it, put out a warrant for your arrest if you're doing anything shady on the network but he will be able to you know take all your data and that's uh that's just a recipe for disaster in my book and uh it's not a very big book so uh it's uh it's certainly concerning and that's uh that's it yeah it's 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 a world that we live in where privacy is our primary concern whether it's the services that we use or the protocols that we choose to encrypt our data, and that so many people want to get at that information. And there's usually a reason why I want to keep that information private in the first place, not because I'm doing anything legal or moral or wrong. It's because I just don't necessarily want people rifling through my information. Um, and if it was true enough for people going through my mail 100 years ago, it's definitely true for people going through my email now. Um, one thing that is not private, though, is the commitment that we here at Gestalt IT have to bring you a great episode of The Rundown every week with the news that should be important to you in the enterprise IT space. We spend all week coming up with great stories from uh, all across the IT space to share with you. But that's not all that we do. There are a lot of other great things that we have going on. Stephen, what are some of the things that you're working on this week that people should be checking out? Well, I am excited to say that this week marks the launch of season three of the Utilizing AI podcast. So if you enjoy, uh, well, I guess listening to me, but also if you enjoy learning about technology, especially artificial intelligence and the surrounding technologies that support AI, and if you are kind of concerned or curious about how AI and machine learning are going to be integrated into enterprise applications and the implications of all this, do check out the Utilizing AI podcast. It's available in your favorite podcast application. And of course, you can also go to utilizing-ai.com. So we just launched season three. Uh, we've got uh, two great co-hosts. We spent some time kind of looking back at what we saw in season two in the episode that was just published yesterday, September 7th. And uh, we'll have a new episode every Tuesday of Utilizing AI. All right, Zach, what about you? You've got some great stuff coming up that people are definitely going to want to check out. What's on your plate? Yeah, absolutely. So if you've ever been over to gestaltit.com or techfieldday.com, you'll see that we have tons of events going on. Our schedules are just jam-packed with, you know, new vendors coming in and 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 new faces as well. And I've, I've had the pleasure to, to talk with actually some of our new delegates that are joining in on, on these upcoming events. And some of their stories are really incredible. So if you pop over to gestaltit.com, you can see all of the articles that we have that are introducing these new delegates. And, you know, I recommend that you get to know them because they are they are some very interesting people and, and surely going to play a big role in the space in the, in the upcoming future. So that's what I've been working on. How about you, Tom? Well, as luck would have it, I do have something going on next week that you're definitely going to want to pay attention to. If you're a fan of enterprise networking, you're not going to want to miss the latest edition of Tech Field Day's Networking Field Day event. We have a great lineup of presenters going Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And we are definitely going to be scheduling around the big Apple announcement. We have a presentation right before it. We have a presentation right after it. So um, if you're not going to be getting a brand new iPhone, you're definitely going to want to check out presentations from Juniper, 
Arista, Cisco, NetBees, Path Solutions, and more. Head over to techfieldday.com, click on the link for Networking Field Day. You're not going to want to miss a minute of the great presentations there. And uh, you're also not going to want to miss a minute of the rundown, which will be back next Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time, just like it is every week. And if you want to listen to the rundown on demand, you can head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. Or as Stephen mentioned, you can subscribe to this in your favorite podcast application. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Apple Music if that's your favorite way to go. If you do that, however, please make sure that you leave us a review and a rating because people will use that as a judge of whether or not this is their favorite news show as opposed to every other news show, which isn't because we are everybody's favorite so leave us a review and let everybody know what you think of us and uh hopefully that will give us some more listeners and some more great news stories to bring to you in the coming weeks um, but for myself stephen foskett zach demeyer and the rest of the gestalt it community thank you very much for tuning in and we hope that you have an amazingly wonderful day